Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome, everyone, to the show that searches for an answer to the question you didn't even know needed answering. Just who is the greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2022? Yes, it's Second Captain Saturday. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, on. How's it going? Nick Hornby set a hell of a standard last week, having written one of the great sports books of all time and, according to his own recollection, having scored the greatest five-a-side goal of all time. But it is important to note that a deep knowledge of sport is absolutely not a requirement to appear on this show or to listen to this show. I cannot stress mm. this enough. Take, for example, today's guest, the great Irish writer Anne Enright. When her producer Killian first got in touch with Anne about appearing on the programme, her response was, Hi, Killian. The thing is, I hate sport, or I don't mind it, but I don't watch it. I don't even watch the Olympics. I don't even have a telly. <laughs> All of which is not what we expected, but it's what we got. Some radio shows would be cowed by such a response, but not us, on. In, we no, were inspired, no. rather. Inspired. Inspired. We thought, we, we've got to get this woman on. Let's, listen, when your work has been described as having helped Irish people make sense of our lives and helped the rest of the world understand Ireland, I don't think we're going to get too hung up on whether or not you think Brian Cody should have done a 25th year with the Kilkenny Hurlers. <laughs> we're talking, Murph, we're very excited to have Anne on the show today. Just a, an absolutely huge figure in the world of literature. Yeah, she's written novels about matriarchs, about families and about Ireland, as you say. And they all have such... Um, kind of quiet power about them they're extraordinary she won the man booker prize in 2007 for the gathering she won the kerry group irish mm-hmm. fiction award for the wonderful the green road her latest novel actress was just a stunning book about motherhood celebrity dublin the art of acting and she was the inaugural irish laureate for irish fiction so a literary <laughs> heavyweight in every conceivable way on but not a clue whether or not Colm o'rourke is the right man for the meat job no I get you i get i get where you're coming from here listen i fear Anne may not know what she's letting herself in for today because the integrity, Murph, the integrity of your scoring system, it lies in tatters. What happened last week? The great Nick Hornby just intimidated you into giving him extra points. He basically just shouted at you for an extra five. You rolled over. I can honestly say, I looked at you, you were frozen with terror. I had to step in like a boxing referee to call a stop to the punishment. So how are you feeling about things this week? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I dispute your characterization. Uh, we had a discussion. And I decided in consultation with Nick <laughs> that maybe 83 points was a better reflection of his abilities. <laughs> this was a conversation. No conflict, it just conversation. It was a conversation dominated by one party, if I recall correctly. Listen, remind us, how does the scoring system work? What number did Nick Hornby end up with in the end? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yes, yeah, so on every week we ask our guests to give us their all-time sporting highlight. I try and figure out the sports person that I feel they remind me most of, and then I ascribe our guest a score out of 100 to assess whether they can become Ireland's greatest non-sports person sports person for 2022. And then they nudge it up by a few, but go on. The leaderboard does not lie on Nick Hornby, by hook or by crook, tops the table on 83 points. You've had your say there, and fair play to you, Owen. You think I'm weak, you think I don't have the guts, or indeed, <laughs> the stones, to make the hard calls. Well, can I just remind you that I have in the past stared them all down. Oscar-nominated director Lenny Abramson. He begged me to give him more than the 70 measly points I gave him for his bang-average pool-playing skills. Another pool hustler, Kevin Barry, 
might be one of the best Irish writers of his generation, but when I gave him 68 points, no amount of pathetic bleeding on his part could move me. Blind Boy Boat Club pleaded for an increase on the 42 points I gave him for his sporting highlight, which was watching Paul O'Connell lob some fruit at a teacher in the school they attended simultaneously, but no dice. I'm a stone-cold killer, Owen, and when it comes time to deliver my final judgment on Anne Enright later this hour... I will not hesitate. <laughs> That's the standard that has been set for the rest of the series. If you want to get in touch, just tweet at Second Captains, email editor at secondcaptains.com. Anne Enright is coming right up on Second Captain Saturday after something in honour of Murph's love for Nick Hornby. Here's Buzzcocks. <laughs> That's Ever Fallen In Love by Buzzcox, your first tune today on Second Captain Saturday. Our guest this afternoon is one of Ireland's greatest writers. She's a previous winner of the Booker Prize, no less, as well as twice winning the Irish Novel of the Year Award. When the time came to appoint the country's first ever laureate for Irish fiction, she was the unanimous choice. And today, right here on Second Captain Saturday, Anne Enright finally gets the opportunity to talk about sport on national radio. Anne, welcome to the show. <laughs> I've waited so long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure this has always been... Say. This has always been the dream. You can confirm this is a world exclusive on our hands here, Anne Enright's sporting life. Yeah. I have never, ever spoken about sport before. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> take a risk, eh? Yeah, that's what it's all about. So was, it, was there much going on in your house then? Was it, was it a sport-free household growing up? Yeah. No, the Enrights aren't team players. I well, maybe they are in their professional lives, but I don't remember anyone wielding a hockey stick or a camogie or... Um, no, no footballs really were involved in the rearing of those children. Um, and they're all actually uh, pretty fit, you know, they cycle and they walk and they swim and they do whatever, but it doesn't involve, I suppose, winning and losing on a pitch or even watching people win and lose on a pitch. My, my dad did follow sport uh, and he did watch it on the telly all the time. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Well, he was a Clare yeah. man, wasn't he? He was indeed a Clare man and he, uh, well, he'd watch the wrestling on the Saturday afternoon and we'd watch boxing and all those kind of mad things, theatre mm. of sporting pain. But um, yeah, he was a Clare man and his nemesis really was in 1995 when Clare uh, got to the final, which was incredibly exciting and in, so incredibly exciting indeed that he ended up in the cardiac ward in Vincent's what? in the middle of the match or maybe at the end of the match. I don't know. Anyway, it was it was too big. OK, <laughs> it was too big for a Clare man to have to watch this match. So after sorry. that, yeah. So, so I'm sorry, he ended up in the cardiac department of the hospital because 
of the excitement caused by Claire. Was this the All Ireland final, the All Ireland semi final? Are you too young to remember 1995 with Claire? I remember it all too well. Don't worry about that. Yes. When they reached the final, they did it again a couple of years later, I think. Anyway. 97, yeah. Yeah, so we weren't all that fussed, but that was clearly very fussed. And um, it was all too much. As they say, it was all too much. He had an event. I mean, it sounds like a pretty stressful experience for all concerned. Oh, my word. Uh, yes, I suppose it was. Do you remember getting the phone call? Like, uh, did you ask what caused this and only to be told a hurling match? Well, we had a kind of wry little conversation about it afterwards. It became more apparent. I mean, it wasn't a serious... He lived for, for a long, many decades after. But we... Uh, and he took a very, very... Uh, Judicious move. This is very like my dad. He decided not to watch the matches live anymore, that he would record the matches and then he would look at them later when it was all done and dusted and he wouldn't um, endanger his health (laughs) (laughs) by Claire winning or losing or anybody else winning or losing. So then the Saturdays were kind of mad because you couldn't tell nobody. He couldn't turn on the radio to find out the score. Right. So we were all in this kind of weird silence on a Saturday. Not that any of us knew the score, but he would watch it. <laughs> I suppose with his, you know, his his Tom on pause <laughs> <laughs> late at night. I just love the idea that he that he's more relaxed, even though he doesn't want to know the score. So he's still watching it, not knowing the outcome. I know. But there's something just more reassuring to him about it that he, he was history. able to relax more watching it. At that it's day. history. It's mm. happened. There is nothing he can do by way of, or nothing he could have done by way of adrenaline or cheer. Or what? what is that, you know? What do you boys do? What do you boys well, do? It... People do when <laughs> Lose our minds, I think, is what some people might describe it as. Mm. Willing on of the team. Yeah, and I think it is kind of interesting that, uh, you know, there's like a main character energy, I think the kids call it now, where like you convince yourself that even if you're only sitting at home watching the Clare Hurlers, that you somehow have yeah. an impact on how the Clare Hurlers play, even just by shouting at the television. You can't help yourself thinking that I'm giving a lot of good advice here, even if it, if it is only through the television. Therefore, if stripped of my advice, they're just going to go out and play the game and the result is going to be what the result will be. Yeah. And that does take the pressure off a little bit. Or you could be a bad supporter. You could sit there and not care and mm. not support him. What would happen then? That actually makes a bit of sense now the more, you're, the more you're explaining it to us. Well, yes, but that's all mad, you know, technically speaking. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not in any way real. <laughs> Although I'm sure it's a lot of fun. But you wouldn't want to do a reality check on it, would you? It's a very strange thing. Did you never get dragged along by your dad to experience that strangeness up close? Or was it just way, way too dangerous to consider going <laughs> to live games? No, he wasn't an attender at games. And actually, I myself am not hugely mad about crowds one way or the other. But I did. I went to a, actually also a Clare match in Thurless in, when I was 14. And I don't remember any of it. Except... The most marvellous sandwiches in the world, which had been brought by a local woman called Maura Melody, who rejoiced in the name of Maura Melody and did the best ham sandwich I have ever tasted in my life. And also because she was from a pub, like a, a crate of fizzy drinks, which would have been in those days Dwan's out there in Tipperary. Anyway, so that was a great... And I think actually after the schlep, 
and the strangeness of watching people run around in a way I didn't understand. And then they lost and then we went home. And something about that didn't make sense to me as an outing. <laughs> <laughs> what, that it was just deeply unsatisfactory? Yeah, well, I was still essentially a child and you think, yeah, yeah, we're going, yeah, it's going to be great. And then it wasn't great. Nobody could explain to me why that was an okay thing. <laughs> so was it the losing was the issue for you there as opposed to yeah. what actually took I, I place? think yeah, yeah. we're arriving at a point where we can see both the winning and the losing have their downsides for me. It's just a world of draws is fine by you. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I don't mind. It's that investment that weirds me out. I know what you mean. You you go, you get hyped up for this thing, then you watch your team lose. And <laughs> this is supposed to be a great day out. But the gamble, I feel, is that the shared joy that comes from your team or your county or whatever it is, your country winning a big game, it's actually really hard to match that, especially when they're underdogs. Also, uh, a lot of the time now, it feels like we're half into things, scrolling through social media, sort of half paying attention. Yeah. Whereas just being totally invested in something that's going to make you feel whatever it is you're going to feel, even though there's a big risk of feeling pretty awful, that's maybe not a bad way to spend your time. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Nick Hornby was good on losing in that book he wrote about Arsenal. When he said losing was kind of the point, you know, that you were bonded together in the underdogness of it all. And actually, my husband supported for many years a team that didn't make sense to me. We called the Dons, the, s- <laughs> wow. the split away Wimbledon team, you know. When oh, we- well, yeah. AFC Wimbledon. Yeah, AFC Wimbledon. Yeah. OK, so so just explain to for people. That's that's hardcore because that's a team. That is hardcore. There was the original Wimbledon team. They were then relocated to Milton Keynes. That's and right. AFC Wimbledon, who your husband's obviously supporting, grew from the supporters. They said, we're not going to Milton Keynes. Yeah. We're building yeah. our new gr- grassroots club here wow they were actually washed away by money you know um i remember meeting somebody very posh and i said my husband supports wimbledon and she says oh my husband's thinking of buying it <laughs> <laughs> anyway whoever bought it i don't think it was uh, i don't know whose husband bought it but um and they weren't on the telly so he'd be like Checking them out on a Saturday on online and it would come in as a kind of feed. You wouldn't even see the goals. Now, I think that's pure mad, actually, <laughs> that you're not you're not. There's nothing to admire. You might as well be getting the results of two flies going up a wall, which fly. <laughs> but it was all lived, you know, somehow very highly lived in this sort of darkness, you know, of being somewhere else. Well, as you know, Anne, we're going to come back to sport and your sporting life later on in this conversation. But we've already established it clearly wasn't your thing as a kid, really. So what was? I'm going to take a wild guess and say maybe reading the odd book here and there. I did read a lot, yeah. Well, it was in the old days, you know, when people used to read a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And you'd get through a book. I used to, I, I read all the children's section of the Rathmines Library. As in, like you finished? All of them. Okay. I read all of them, yeah. Wow. So you're looking at a book a day, I suppose. And then I needed a, I asked for a ticket for the grown-ups library and they allowed me to have a ticket for the grown-ups library. And I still sort of remember it as that kind of green institutional lino, which may or may not be true. I, I actually started going to a place called Books Upstairs when I was about 12, which was in George's Arcade. And that was a very curated, what you now call curated um, sort of selection. And there was a... Uh, a carousel of of Picador and King Penguin, these white white spined books, 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Angela Carter and Milan Kundra and all of those. And so, so you, you know, I, I must have had some money. <laughs> Actually, the, because I was the youngest in the house, people who are older than me had all kinds of books and a lot of them went under the radar. So I, uh, you know, um, in, in, in the largest uh, iteration of myself, decided to buy Ulysses and when I was 14. And that was banned. I mean, that was like, you're too young. No, you can't. This is, and I was like, ah, it's my money. I bought this book with my own money. You can't take it away. Yeah. So it was put away for me uh, to read when I was 18. Wow. Which is a very, it was a good combination of, uh, you know, telling people not to do something is a really good way of getting them to do it. So. <laughs> Would you say it was put away from you from when you were 18? What do you mean, locked away in the house? It was put up in the attic. Whoa. Wrapped in newspaper. <laughs> well, perhaps benefiting from being that voracious reader as a kid, you showed a huge amount of talent early on in your writing. You got a number of scholarships to some of the best schools and universities in the world. You were off to Canada on a scholarship when you were just 16, which must have come with its own pressures, especially as you were so young, right? I went through a long, long part of my life being embarrassed by my precocity and in general. But now the, the young women I find are not afraid to say yes. I was very clever. And this, <laughs> no, I had left. Um, I did my leaving search at 16. I was supposed to go off au pairing for some German family. That was the plan. And then I got a scholarship to a school in Canada instead for two years. They were called the United Royal Colleges and they still exist. Uh, I mean, they exist as an organisation. So international, everybody on scholarship. Well, they're not all on scholarship now, but everybody was on scholarship. Mm. 50 different countries, 200 students in the middle of a wood. And they kept you really busy. It was like those those kind of uh, English public schools in a way, because they, every hour was timetabled. You were doing something, you were active, you were working in the community, you were... I spent a lot of time in bed or smoking or not doing things, but I met a lot of very interesting people. You said you were embarrassed by your precocity for a long time. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I, yeah, well, I mean, it's just true. I, I, you don't go around being, being, I don't know where the moment is where the child who thinks they're great because they've done this, that and the other turns into the adult who it's impressed on them that being self-delighted is not a way forward socially. Mm. That you're, you might be too pleased with yourself or you might make other people feel wrong. Is that particularly in Ireland, do you think? Or is that a sort of society-wide phenomenon? I don't know. Uh, um, I, I also, uh, I think I'm sort of... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not wholly disapproving of it, although it's a, it's a tough gig because, but I think this kind of jumping through hoops that we put our children through, you know, is not a great idea. So, um, the whole business of the leaving cert gives me a pain, you know, because mm. that's where all of that coalesces, you know, how, you know, uh, how wonderful children, that how, how we make our children wonderful and then really put them through the ringer at the same time at quite, an, uh, quite a, an early age. So I'm not that gone on it as a kind of marker of human growth. Okay? So um, I think there are, there are better ways to be in the world than uh, slight, that, precocious, that, that childlike thing of, of, of oh, oh, this is great, this is great, this is great. Yeah. 
He also got a scholarship to the University of East Anglia for an MA in creative writing, which was hugely prestigious. You were being taught by the likes of Angela Carter and Malcolm Bradbury. The course produced the likes of Kasuo Ishiguro and Ian McEwan. So again, a lot was expected of you and you struggled there, I think it's fair to say. I did, actually. Yeah. And that's another thing about uh, pushing towards some sort of larger idea of success. Um, I, I failed to write a huge novel there um, and didn't. I came home with nothing. And then I sat down and typed four short stories when I got back. But I found it very, I, I found it very difficult. I, I'd bitten off more than I could chew, maybe. Or Yeah, it was pretty radically tricky, all right. Even still now, I find Easter to the beginning, <laughs> the beginning of summer. Some shadow of that time comes back to just tickle the back of my brain saying, yeah, it's still still available, that, that difficulty that I was in, which is quite an anguished kind of difficulty, quite a, a, that sense of impossibility. Yeah. That sounds very similar to, I've interviewed quite a few Irish, young Irish football players yeah. who go to England get tr- a trial or, or a, a year or two as a underage player at, at an English club and doesn't work out for whatever reason they come back and f- just feel like a failure especially because they've been kind of bigged up or like you're saying they were precocious and yeah. they were the, they were always the big fish they go over they come back they feel like they fail and they struggle to adapt then um, to that feeling obviously you said it did start to take off for you when you came home but did you did, would you have had those sort of feelings like I've actually I haven't lived up to some ideal in my own head or some pedestal I've been put on yeah no the, first of all the the achieve 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 uh, hamster wheel that 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 rings loads of bells for me because if you do well and you're leaving certain then you have to do you know all of that kind of ding 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 on it goes um and uh, and, where, uh, and also what where are the satisfactions then in achieving something in the world it's very kind of uh, um it's it's very outside you it's very in the world. It's not necessarily in your heart, I suppose you could say. But going off, yeah, no, I had grand ideas. I stood in the prow of the ferry going across with my little typewriter in my case, basically going, yes, I mean, I'm following Beckett. <laughs> um, and I, I still haven't done all that. I mean, the stakes in literature, I suppose, in some really a way that's really hard to define are very high or very inaccessible. Hmm. You you have an idea in your own head of some some work of genius that you have to work towards. Yeah. That's that's almost impossible to achieve basically. At 24. Yeah. It's not the pressure you put it's the f- fantasy, okay? That's the problem. Because writing is satisfying and for me a place of almost solace and interest and resolution and a lot of good things that happen to me when I'm working. But what was happening to me then in that situation was that I wasn't able, I wasn't work, I didn't know how to work. So I was sitting in a room and I had all these ideas and plans on the wall and they were just looking at me, they were not on the page. So I teach now um, in UCD and I'm I do a terrible thing, which is I oblige the students to look at the page because there's nothing else. It's not up there. It's not in the clouds. You're going to pluck it out of the clouds. It's not on the wall in many different coloured plans and maps. It's actually on the page. And when you start kind of enjoying your sentences for themselves and when you start to understand what process is, 
then you're ahead of the game. It's that emptiness of achieving but what, yeah? So the gap between the idea of pushing towards something amazing, but not knowing what it, what it might be, yeah? Mm. But I do know that reality is your friend, you know, and reality is also what you're, what you're working on day to day. When you did come home from England, as things started to happen for you at home in your writing career, you also started a new job producing and directing live TV for RTE. And starting a career in television must feel really exciting, especially for someone in their mid-twenties. But you were also stepping into another high-pressure environment. I came back from England and I got a job slightly by accident in um, in RTE. And I was a producer and director in my early tw- in my mid-twenties in RTE. Mm. So I was part of... I mean, they actually said she'd be burnt out in four years. I lasted six but I mean, for a manager to say, you're, to, to say you're going to be burnt out in four years, they were very cavalier in those days about, about such matters, you know. Um, but yeah, 80 hour weeks. I suppose it's like a junior doctor these days. We're working 12 days in a row, that kind of thing. Uh, heavy schedules on air three times a week, live. I was either on or gone, you know. Like I could do it all and then I, you know, the, the switch would flick and I could do absolutely nothing. So I think the switch flicked more or less permanently one day in spring in 1991. Actually, I went to a GP for something else and, and of all the doctors I'd been to, he was the one who asked the right questions. And he said, do you ever think about killing yourself? And I said, yes, I do. And nobody had asked me that question before. And now they're all kind of trained to do it. So he kind of packed me off uh, to some kind of place um, and then slowly sticking myself back together again, coming out into the world. And was writing a, a big part of the solution for you then? Where did, did things clarify for you and say, OK, for better or worse, for all that the, uh, the pressure I put on myself, I still... I'm a writer, I still want to be a writer and that's that's for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, when people talk about writing as though it's a rescue, you have to say that um, uh, waitresses <laughs> suffer from mental health issues, bus conductors, people who are unemployed, people across all kinds of strands of society and nobody says to them, do you think if you went back waitressing, would you feel better about yourself, you know? Mm. So there is a kind of mystical view that writing is a cure. It has, I think, healing properties of some description. It brings things together for people when, when, when you know, stories actually matter and narrative matters to us and, um, and they do make things more coherent and sometimes they make things better. So there is a slightly redemptive kind of thing about uh, writing. But actually, I think these matters of, of wellness are more to do, well, just much more basic than that. They're about how you manage your day and how you manage your mood. And, uh, and they're just, they're, they're kind of fundamentals. They're not big mystical events, although they feel very strongly emotional they feel very large but that sense of largeness might be a symptom as much as anything else yeah i think that's really well put and listen we've so much more to talk about including your sporting life which we're going to get to after the break you're listening to Anne enright this week's guest on second captain saturday second captains on rte radio one sponsored by audi ireland future is an attitude 
second captain, first captain, whatever. Yes, this is Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. Our guest is one of Ireland's greatest writers of all time, the Booker Prize winner, Anne Enright. And we've loved your company so far this afternoon. You've told us about your passion for reading with copies of Ulysses being hidden from you in the attic growing up and completing full bloody libraries as a kid. But what I want to know is, as the country's first ever laureate for Irish fiction, do you feel any sort of obligation? Do you feel it's important to share with others the joys that can be found in reading and in literature? No, (laughs) no, I mean, I don't think I have to persuade anybody of anything. Um, I think it kind of depends on how you cluster, especially online, because there are communities of readers and writers online that you mightn't that you mightn't be networking with all the time. But they are they're very kind of passionate, much more kind of officially enthusiastic than I am really and and they're busy reading and they're busy uh, passing books along and making recommendations and so it's quite a lively scene so every so often people say the novel is over and literature is finished and who are the gods now and all that kind of bollocks I've no interest in it whatsoever I think we're, we're probably grand I do think um, uh, that the attention span, the loss of attention span has affected prose style more or less in the last 10 years. But um, yeah, no, I don't, I'm not going to say this book is going to change your life. Mm. Uh, this book is going to, it's like, you know, going for a walk doesn't change your life. Going for a walk every day does change your life if you do it every day. It really does change your life. So reading a book as though this is some kind of talismanic magic object, sometimes people do find profound um, uh, connection in it, on the page. But actually, it's just reading more or less, you know, more than once a year. That can also <laughs> improve your life. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's even uh, Obviously, we market ourselves, that Ireland is marketed in a lot of ways as this, the home of of. of poets and writers and all that sort of stuff is is that actually the lived reality do you think i mean it's completely true it is completely true just the i mean and it's actually a problem <laughs> it's just so how so because there's we get complacent about it there are so many good writers every year or every year two three kind of permanent names if permanence to still exist come on come on stream and you just if you you if you put a kind of battalion of them out there or a team of them out there, you wouldn't get a team matching them. It's a global force and it has been for 20, 30 years. It's not to be underestimated. It's just really real. Mm, I think there is kind of like a, there can be a little um, a contrast in our heads when we think about, you know, like we're all very proud of Joyce and Yeats and Wilde and these guys and, you know, we're more than happy to sell our country as the country of these guys. Um, do you think, does it matter that maybe many of us don't engage with them as writers that, you know, unless, you know, as expressly set out by the Leaving Cert, should we feel a little yeah. guilty about putting them front and centre as to how we market ourselves to tourists? Or do we actually just say, we're proud that they're, that they're from here. We don't have to pretend that we know every nuance of their writing and what makes them great to kind of the wider world. I'd be surprised how much you've picked up, though, and how much is in the air that isn't in the air in other cultures. Um, So don't underestimate where your own speech and cadences, where the richness of your language comes from and and, and how it is. It's kind of side by side culturally. 
So, I don't know, you have to get out of the house more. I was in Hodges Figgis now on, on Thursday night and there's a whole new book out by Angela Flannery called The Amusements. She, uh, a bunch of people there, there's future books in the room, there were past books in the room. It's just a very busy, lively scene. And when I get students in UCD from mm. America or uh, anywhere else, they go to these places. They read the small journals like Gorse and The Moth and The Dublin Review and The Stinging Fly. And just because they're not on your radar doesn't mean that they're not like absolutely the kind of the bedrock of it all. Or it's the bedrock is that it's just a really kind of fertile space. It's really there, a lot of stuff is happening and you just you're not going to get it in Charleston, Virginia. You're not going to get it in Scunthorpe. You're just you get it in goddamn Grafton Street and Nassau Street. And it's right there. You know, I mean, this question about monumentalizing those writers is a real one because it turns them into something inaccessible and to me slightly wrong, you know. Um, but, you know, Samuel Beckett is now a bridge and I was looking at, uh, I was looking out over the Martello Tower and um, the Joyce Tower and there was the L.E. James Joyce. There was a little naval vessel there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking, oh, great. He really wanted to be a goddamn <laughs> navy, naval ship, you know. That's, that's all happening. So those kind of things, we you can knock them from the inside and that's a kind of pro proper thing to do but when you go to other places and you realize actually they really don't do this that it's uh it is kind of special then you get over yourself about how small or large it makes you feel as a person yeah because you have or haven't read the lake isle of Inishfree. yeah you know well after that comprehensive takedown of Murph and his point on Ireland's literary <laughs> heroes let's jump back to more familiar terrain for us you can get your own back here Murph as we look to rate Anne Enright's I'm, sporting I'm life very well me <laughs> and we've got lots of plus points already on the board for your dad's frankly quite worrying passion for Claire Hurling more melody brought you to a Munster Championship game that's good but you thought it was shite that's bad although the Sambos were top notch so that's good again how about your own playing exploits as a kid did you get stuck in I was quite a tomboy uh, uh, and I used to play, I suppose, sport, what might be called sport. I mean, the thing that you get in school isn't re was never really sport. It was just an odd running around, in, an odd running around for no apparent reason. But then the sport was what was on the road. That's where the ad hoc kind of teams were and the jumpers were put down and people would kick a ball. Um, and I did all that until the boys decided that boys couldn't play with girls and that was that, you know. So that was my sporting life. <sighs> cruelly ended at the age of seven or eight or whatever that was. You didn't feel like even that you were an active sort of decision maker in that? It, just, it was sort of the boys thing and we're, we're not supposed to play? Well, you can't join a team if the team won't let you join, if you're wrong for the mm. team. So it wasn't really my decision at all, I think, that shift. Mm. I mean, you know, these are small incidents, but I suppose they could actually make a difference. I think if the culture has shifted in the, in the 50 years since all of that, then that would be a good thing. I don't know if it has, though. Boys tend to, uh, differ, you know, they separate out into groups that eight, nine, ten, and, they, and those groups are very anti, can be very anti-girl. And then some of them never grow out of it. Well, with all that said... How much does sport influence your life today or does it? Crucial points for Murph. How active are you? Do you play anything? 
I was down in the, I was actually swimming yesterday down uh, near the 40 foot and it's gorgeous. It's 13.5 degrees and it's just, I mean, I try, I, I, I kind of swear off it, but it's just, I can't look at the water without thinking I have to get in there now. It's incredibly um, primal. Things like the horizon line and the flatness of the water. There's a thing that, and the sky, I mean, rolling around, seeing the sky above you. <clears throat> There's a thing that happens to me about, and I wait for it before I get out, actually. It's like a little thread, a tiny little thread in my brain just goes ping. It just snaps. Whatever tension or whatever you're holding or whatever it is just gives way. And it's like mm. it does, you can almost hear, I can almost hear the click. It's like, here I am. It's very close to perfect. I mean, it really, really makes me happy. Mm. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's important that it's the sea. I don't mind the cold. Um, it is, uh, but of course then I don't go because it's too cold. But yeah, I, I don't even think it's endorphins because I think the endorphins, you know, come from more strenuous cardio. There's just something that happens. That just, it, it, your, my head just opens, just... Yeah, it's a jolt, really, isn't it? You know, it's just like a reset button. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, my wife goes sea swimming all the time, and that's how she describes it. It's just, you know, it's whatever you were thinking, turn it off and turn it back on again. Yeah. That's kind of what happens, you know, for her when she gets in the sea. Yeah, well, there's, you know, your circulation goes crazy and your heart actually goes crazy in the cold. There's a big kind of cardio thing that happens when you get in, jump in, you have to be kind of careful with all of that. Um, there's a kind of gasp reflex. Oh, I'm talking about it now, but I haven't been doing it as much as I talk about it, you know. But it is lovely when you get to doing it, actually, as opposed to just thinking about it. Well, one thing I've found about, uh, it's the 40 foot you go to, is it? Yeah. Um, one thing I have noticed is that it can be a very um, isolated thing. It can be a thing just for yourself that you go swimming. But then there are also groups of people at the various swimming spots around Dublin as well. And there is kind of an informal team that kind of surrounds, if you meet the same people there there every day, and that like that in itself is kind of a beautiful thing, that it's, you go there for yourself, but you also have this sort of community around you that, that enlivens the entire, the entire uh, scene for you. I see these gangs of women and they are having the best time ever. I mean, they're just have, it's like a hen party where they drink. It's just fantastic. Um, and I was a bit taken, I mean, I was a bit sort of, I had my doubts then when everyone was giving out about the dry robes. Yeah. Because, you know, they say, oh, dry robes, and they're so expensive, and they are expensive. And, but it seemed to me that there might be an undercurrent there of what are these women doing in their, you know, because it's women who wear the dry robes. And, uh, and is there a kind of thing against some, not always middle-class women, but is it because of the price, middle-class women? that they shouldn't be out enjoying themselves. Like there are guys going past on the cycle track who have, on the cycle lane, who've paid seven, eight, nine grand for their bikes. Mm. And nobody's given out about the cyclists because it's not, and I think it may be partly because of the way the dry rope has been gendered. So, I mean, you can't give out about people enjoying themselves in the sea. It's actually a crime to give out about people enjoying themselves in the sea. Mm. Well, this could be the moment and that you, uh, you you finally make your name as a sports person. Oh, we do have to, before we, we get to Murph, ranking your sporting life. I'm going to ask you for your highlight. What is the highlight of this glittering career that you talk about? I did also meet a seal. Wow. And that was a close encounter of a very significant kind. And I got what might be called a, an intelligent inquiry at the bottom of my leg. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I kind of knew it wasn't inanimate. 
and I knew it wasn't a fish and I knew it was kind of sussing it out. So I righted myself in the water and then this seal just peeled back from me, just in no, about nine feet long, eight, nine feet long. <laughs> a, a very a light, uh, a speckled, gorgeous, big uh, creature with very big black eyes. Um, so I, I climbed out roaring and the guys on the rock said, ah, he's only playing with you. <laughs> He only wants to play. I said, you get in. You get in there if you want to play. Okay, we can put it off no longer. It's ranking time. And you're, you've beautifully described the merits of sea swimming and what it gives you. But on the opposite side, your all-time sporting highlight is a seal rubbing off you at one stage. doesn't fill me with too much confidence, <laughs> i got to say. How are your own confidence levels? Uh, well, I came in here um, uh, more confident than I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Murph, could you please now rank this sporting life of Anne Enright? You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. <laughs> Well, and here goes. Uh, a quick reminder of who you want to crush underfoot here. Fellow novelist Colm Tobin got 75 points for boring his tennis opponents to death. Richard Ford got 85 points last year for some baseball heroics. But just to personalise it further, Derny Grief has scored 84 points, mainly for dominating the hell out of a couple of MS readathons back in the 80s and for being the sort of Claire Hurling superfan that won All-Ireland final tickets in a raffle in her local Supermax in 1995. So there's the bar. The deal here is that I assess your your all-time sporting highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover just where you stand on our greatest non-sports person, sports person leader. That leaderboard for 2022 is, as we know, controversially being headed by Nick Hornby on 83 points after my much publicised and very public live collapse on air (laughs) last week. So your father's devotion to Claire may have opened your eyes to how some sporting fandom can get a little out of control and your zen-like <laughs> refusal to be drawn into supporting anyone is a lesson to us all, of course. Your sporting highlight is swimming in the sea with a seal. And this, of course, put me in mind of another high-achieving Irish person at the top of their game. Your communion with nature makes you the Rachel Blackmore of the sea. I mean, obviously you didn't hitch a lift on top of the seal. That would be disrespectful. But you had a moment there where it was just a pair of you, and I like it. Points gained for a surprising amount of AFC Wimbledon knowledge. However, some points have been lost for hating the only sporting event you ever went to. So, <laughs> is seal swimming a sport? No, but it's still pretty cool. So, taking it all into account, I'll give you 72 points and our heartfelt thanks. Anne Enright, this has been your sporting Oh, life. Anne, thank you so much. Thanks, thank you. Loves. Round of applause, please, for Anne Enright. <laughs> thank you so much, Anne. As we speak, listen to the drums speak. As we speak, as we speak, in our sleep, listen to the drums speak. In our sleep, in our sleep, as we speak, listen to the drums speak. As we speak. 
in our sleep as we speak. Listen to the drums beat in our sleep. That song is especially for our guest today, Anne Enright. It's Laurie Anderson and her tune, In Our Sleep, duetting with Lou Reed, who would later become Laurie's husband, in case you didn't know that little fact. Anne is a massive Laurie Anderson fan. She wrote about that fandom in the book, This Woman's Work, a brilliant collection of essays on music edited by Sinead Gleason and Kim Gordon that was released this year. So that's why we're playing that song. And in fact, when Anne was producing TV here in RTE, she put the video of Oh Superman by Laurie Anderson out in her first broadcast. I think it was on Nighthawks. Now this was the first time that that was played on Irish TV. And anyone who knows that song knows how it, I would say it divides opinion. So a very brave move to put it out back in the mm. 80s on RTE television. So divisive, Murph, that our own producers decided against playing it in full Right now on the show in 2022. <laughs> it's uh, it's not to everybody's tastes, but it was a, a big call to make back then. So there's a nice bit of detail for you on our song choice today. Before we go, Kieran, where do you stand on the big question that was raised in that chat with Anne? The dry robe culture wars. Oh, I wow. believe you're, you're a hardcore one. fan. I am a hardcore fan. Uh, nothing to do with me now, mind. I mean, I mentioned there that uh, my wife goes uh, sea swimming. Uh, so there is often a dry robe in the boot of our car. Uh, I went to see Gola play Roscommon in the Connacht Championship last year, 2021. Uh, anyone who remembers that game remembers that, w- that it was played in a hysterical downpour to quote uh, <laughs> Kevin Barry. Yeah. I remember pulling up saying, well, at least I've got the umbrella in the, the, the boot of the car. Of course, I don't have an umbrella in the boot of the car. Everyone <laughs> thinks they have an umbrella in the boot of the car, but no one actually does. So I got back to the car anyway after sitting for almost two hours in just the most outrageous rain desperately scratching around all of my clothes soaked through it's like surely there's a you know some old fo- like maybe my football gear bag is is here in the boot maybe i could change and change my socks could i at least change my socks not a stitch of clothing available to me other than my wife's dry robe and i put it on it was like <laughs> actually amazing so, okay i can take my t-shirt off that's fine that's good and then my pants were, my jeans were soaking it's like Slipped off my jeans. And then I realised before too long that I was completely <laughs> naked except for a pair of runners and my wife's dry robe. But I have to say my drive home ah. was immeasurably improved just for the dry robe. So I will not hear... I'm, I'm with Anne 100% here. I will not hear a bad word said against the dry robe. Unfortunately, you have just ruined the afternoon of everybody listening to this show with that image, Murph. But that's it from us. That's it from us until next week. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 for Saturday Sport. This has been a second captain's production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Our thanks to Janney Lanagon and Elizabeth Largy in RTE. Mark Horgan is a series producer for Second Captains. You can listen to us Monday to Friday at secondcaptains.com. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening and a huge thanks once again to Anne Enright. Why not? Here's a little bit of O Superman to close out the show in her honour. Maybe not all eight and a half minutes of it. We'll see you next week. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude.